Hey, thanks so much for listening to the Grace City Church podcast. If you would like more info on our church, you can visit gracecityboston.com. Now let's get to the sermon. Hey, thanks. You can be seated. Good morning. Happy Easter. Uh, so glad that you're, uh, that you're here with us. Uh, welcome to Grace City at a House of Blues. Who would have thought uh, a, year, a year ago at this point? Uh, so House of Blues hasn't um, never had anything going on. Uh, for the last year or so, there's been no shows. Some of you are artists. You're like, yes, I'm starving already more. And uh, but there's been there's been no shows, any of those types of things. And uh, who would have thought the next time uh, in in 2021, uh, the next time that people would be gathering in the House of Blues, it would be God's people uh, at Easter uh, 2021. And so I don't, if I don't know you, my name is Brian, I'm the lead pastor here uh, at um, at Grace City. And, uh, and so I just want to extend a warm welcome to you as well and say thanks for being here. And I know Haley mentioned it uh, at the beginning part of our time together, uh, but we will be here for the next few weeks. Uh, so we'll be kind of landing. This will be our landing spot for the next few weeks. And then, uh, you know, who knows? We'll just continue to ask God to be faithful and we'll trust him in that process uh, as well. And so uh, we're going to dive into our text. We're actually, I know it's Easter, but we're actually been kind of following along. If you've been uh, at all following along in the series that we've been in, we've been in a series called The the Holy Week. And so we've been looking at, uh, essentially been looking at the last week of Jesus's life uh, together. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and turn it to uh, Matthew chapter 27. We're going to start in verse 62. Uh, I'll go ahead and let you find that. It'll also be on the screen when we get to it at that point. We won't get there yet, Cohen. You can take that off, but um, I'll go ahead and let you find that. Matthew chapter 27 uh, is where we're going to be at. But I want to kind of set up our, our just kind of a little bit of drop in and kind of show what, what's been happening in this current series. And so uh, week one, if you weren't here, so week one, uh, just kind of give you a little bit of update on how we get to the Easter story if you're not as familiar. So there's a seven-day period in which uh, Jesus goes into uh, Jerusalem to claim his kingship. And, and the Bible tells us the gospel narrative, so Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, tell us about this kind of week, this seven-day period in which Jesus is going into Jerusalem to do the work that he's going to do on the cross on a Roman execution device. And so what the, the gospel narratives tell us and what we looked at week one is the story of the triumphal entry. And so there's this story uh, in the gospel narratives, if, you, if you're not familiar with it, where Jesus is coming into Jerusalem and people are cheering for him. They're, they're, they're uh, shouting for him. They're, they're putting out Old Testament kind of prophecy for Jesus. They're like, here is the king. Here is the coming Messiah. He is finally here. There's just like huge kind of celebration that's going on. And this happens on Sunday. And then over the next few days, what begins to happen is we see Jesus take um, uh, the Lord's Supper. Uh, the story's called maybe the Upper Room, if you're familiar with that. They take just a, a traditional kind of, uh, traditional Jewish kind of Seder Passover meal together. And so Jesus in that particular narrative is laying claim to the Old Testament prophecy that God is a God who saves. And Jesus is saying, I'm going to be the one who saves. And so he rolls out of the Upper Room uh, into the, the Garden of Gethsemane narrative where he's with his disciples. And so he's praying there to the Father and he's saying, God, I see what's in front of me and I'm not really sure. Uh, I, I don't really, I don't not, I don't, don't want to do it, but, but I'll do it if it's your will. If it's according to what you've called, I will do it. And so we see in this intense moment of anxiety, Jesus speaking with and pleading with the Father. And in the same moment, uh, we see uh, one of Jesus' disciples come to him and arrest him. And then uh, what we looked at uh, the, the next week was a Jesus before Pilate, this Roman 
this Roman governor in this particular area of Palestine. And he goes in this kind of discussion with Jesus and, and he's trying to get underneath. And what kind of what we looked at in that, that week is, is Pilate's trying to figure out, is this Jesus, this Hebrew teacher, this rabbi that's been gathering a crowd, is he a political leader? Is he going to create problems for Rome? That's what they were interested in. And so we ultimately see in that story that, uh, that, that Pilate's like, uh, dude, he's innocent. Like he's, he's the, the, the claims that the religious leaders were bringing against Jesus, he says he, he, he's innocent. And, and ultimately we see that they, um, they, they talk Pilate into this process. And so uh, last week, uh, if, you, if you saw it, if you didn't see any of these, you can go back and, and watch them on, on any of our stuff that we have. But um, last week we looked at uh, the crucifixion. And we looked at um, the, the, the both horror and the beauty of the crucifixion and, and the work that Jesus did on our behalf. And so um, Easter, uh, Easter is about the resurrection, if you didn't know. Like, that's, that's what we are here today to celebrate. Uh, when I was a kid, I actually didn't know that. Um, I, when I was a kid, like, I kind of knew, um, I don't know if you grew up like me, like, I, I kind of knew that there was some religious stuff going on. Uh, uh, around Easter and, and things like that. Uh, but it, apparently, I, I couldn't have told you that apparently a guy said that he was going to raise from the dead. Like that wasn't something kind of in my radar. I thought it was more probable that a giant bunny would come into my house and leave candy than a guy would come from, uh, that he would rise from the grave. But that's Easter. That is the, the story. And the resurrection in particular uh, is, uh, I would say, um, the most significant event in the Christian faith story. I mean, Easter is our day. It is the, the Christian's day because the resurrection is the most essential thing about our, uh, about our particular uh, faith. It, it turns out that the resurrection of Jesus is actually the cornerstone of the Christian faith. Uh, it, in reality, right, if the resurrection doesn't happen, uh, then we are a foolish people. And it's funny to think about that um, the, the resurrection sounds foolish, but if the, the foolish thing that we believe wasn't true, then we would be foolish. But it sounds foolish. You follow me there? All right. J.C. Ryle uh, says this about the resurrection, because the New Testament leaders saw it as the um, most essential claim of the Christian faith. This is what J.C. Ryle says. Uh, he says, we need not wonder so much the importance that is attached to our Lord's resurrection. It is the seal and the memorial stone of the great work of redemption which he came to do. It is the crowning proof that he has paid the debt he undertook to pay on our behalf, won the battle he fought to deliver us from hell, and is accepted as our guarantee and substitute by our Father in heaven. So Ryle says that the resurrection is the seal and the memorial stone, the work and the crowning proof that he paid our debt, won the battle, and serves as our substitute. The Apostle Paul, one of the early leaders of the Christian faith and the writer of the majority of the New Testament, um, the New Testament letters, he writes this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 14, and 19 to the church at Corinth. He says this in 14. He says, um, if Christ had not been raised, listen to what he says, if Christ had not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God. And if Christ had not been raised, your faith is worthless and you're still in your sins. Kick down to verse 19. He says, if we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. You see, Paul rightly recognized the importance of the resurrection of Christ. If Jesus isn't risen, then we're following a dead Messiah. Is that not true? 
If he's not risen, we're following a dead Messiah. And we're to be, to use the words that Paul uses, we're to be pitied more than anyone else, more than anyone else. He is essentially saying, if Christ didn't rise from the dead, then what are we doing here? What are we doing here if he didn't rise from the dead? So, so this is why... Um, this is why ultimately I think you have to deal with the question, and this is what I want to look at today. Uh, we ultimately have to deal with the question, do I believe in the resurrection of Jesus? Paul, Paul says uh, in Romans chapter 10, verse 9, uh, Romans is Paul's like pivotal work. Do you know what I mean? This is like his essential album that he's released. I mean, this is like the, the letter, uh, Paul's Roman letter is the dissertation. It is, it is like the pivotal work that you got to read, that you got to get in. And listen to what he says about the resurrection. Um, he, he says it here. He essentially says that if you don't believe in the resurrection, this is Romans 10, 9. You can just write that down. You have to go there. If you don't believe in the resurrection, you don't experience salvation. You can't. So you have to confess that, G- that Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead. This is why we have to deal um, with the question. I mean, if you think about this, so the, the news for Easter is not necessarily that Christ is alive so much as it is that Christ is risen. Now, I know that's nuanced. That, that's kind of a nuanced thought there, but it's an important distinction to me. Yes, he is alive, but we want to highlight even more than he's alive is that he is risen because the statement he is risen presupposes that at some point he was dead. Does it not? This is why we say he's risen. He is risen indeed. If you grew up in the church, this is why we do this. And so I think before we get to the implications of the resurrection, and, and so here's what I want to do. I want to look at uh, why it matters, or, or is, can it be true, essentially, and then why it should matter um, for us. But I think before we get into all of that, um, I, I think that I want to take a logical look at the resurrection of Jesus. Now, we live in Boston, right? That, that's where we are, the most logical place in the world. And I respect that. I respect the logic. I'm, I'm down. I'm, I'm here. I'm for the logic. And so I, I do want us to take a logical look at the resurrection. I don't think that we have to be necessarily um, fearful of, of doing that. God's not afraid of our questions. He's not fearful to, uh, to dive in. And so we're going to look at, is it true or is it possible? And then does it matter? Okay, so if you have your Bible, Matthew chapter 27, we're going to start in verse 62 of this gospel narrative, and then we're going to talk through kind of this process together. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll dive in. God, thank you. Um, thanks for your word. Thank you that, uh, that you still speak to us, that you're, you have a desire to say something to us. You're not a God who is silent. You're not a God who uh, created and just left us, um, but you're a God who's interacting with us. And so, God, we ask, um, we just ask your Holy Spirit this morning that he would provide a sense of of clarity and discernment this morning. Uh, we, we need his help as we kind of process out uh, this idea of the resurrection, God. This is a, this is a difficult thing um, for us to get our minds around. We, we recognize it as important, but it's also uh, difficult, God. And so we need your help in this. Thank you that we have um, this account by Matthew uh, to follow along through, God. And so we love you, God. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Matthew 26, uh, or 27, starting in verse 62. It says this, The next day, um, which followed the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and said, Sir, so this is the religious leaders. He says, Sir, we remember that while the deceiver was still alive, he said, After three days I will rise again. So give orders that the tomb be made secure until the third day. Otherwise, his disciples may come, steal him, and take the people, uh, and tell the people he has been raised from the dead, and the last deception will be worse than the first. 
Verse 65, take guards, Pilate told them, go and make it as secure as you know how. They went and secured the tomb by setting a seal on the stone and placing the guards into chapter 28 now of Matthew. It says, after the Sabbath, as the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to view the tomb. There was a violent earthquake because an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. He rolled the stone, he rolled back the stone and was sitting on it. His appearance was like lightning and his clothing was white as snow. The guards were shaken by fear of him and they became like dead men. The angel told the woman, don't be afraid because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here, for he has risen just as he said. Come and see the place where he lay, verse seven. Then go quickly and tell his disciples, he is risen from the dead, and indeed he is going ahead of you to Galilee, and you will see him there. Listen, I have told you. So departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples the news. Just then Jesus met them and said, greetings. They, they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. Then Jesus told them, do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to leave for Galilee and they will see me there. They'll see me there. Let's kick down to verse, uh, verse 11 now. It says, as they were on their way, some of the guards came into the city and reported the chief priest everything that had happened. After the priests had assembled with the elders and, and agreed on a plan, they gave the soldiers a large sum of money and they told them, say this, here's the plan. Say this, his disciples came during the night and stole him while he was sleeping. If this reaches the governor's ears, we will deal with him and keep you out of trouble. They took the money and did as they were instructed. And this story has been sp spread uh, among the Jewish people since this day. Okay, so let's look at our first question here. Is it true? How do we, how do we know that it's true? I mean, this is the question we have to think through. Now, Matthew's gospel is gonna give us three kind of clues or evidence, or I would even say um, barriers that are gonna help us uh, answer the question. And, and I do want to say that uh, I think it's important to mention that this particular account in Matthew and then Mark, Luke, and John's account are all eyewitnesses account. They're all accounts from eyewitnesses where they had been meeting with someone, talking with someone, gathering data. The, the thing that's a bit different about their kind of culture where they're at in this particular part of the century is a very vo uh, verbal culture, right? So they're telling stories about Jesus. They're communicating about Jesus. Uh, but we're still in a time period in which um, we're still in a time period in which they could say, hey, you, you go and talk to that person. Like, I, this person actually saw the resurrected Jesus. Like, it's important to understand that these are kind of eyewitness uh, accounts that they could be able to go and, uh, and say to these, these people, right? Sometimes we read it and we're so far separated from it that we think, oh gosh, how do I even know uh, all, all this is true? Well, they could actually go. It, it would be similar to like, um, uh, it'd be similar to like if I said, uh, if I started this rumor around that I helped George Lucas with the last three Star Wars. You know what I mean? And you'd be like, that explains why they're terrible. Um, uh, if you're a Star Wars person, right? If I kind of went around and began to spread that rumor, right? I put it on my LinkedIn. I began to like sign autographs, director, producer, writer for uh, Star Wars. I don't even know their number. Now I'm showing myself. I don't even know what their number. They're one through three. It's backwards, right? I don't know. Anyways, if I begin to kind of spread that rumor, uh, what, what, what could happen? And, and all my friends, I'm getting all the accolades for that. You could do what? You could, if you know George Lucas, you go to him and say, hey, dude, uh, George, did, um, I guess that's what you call him, Mr. Lucas, whatever. Uh, did, did, did Brian help you write, produce, and story tell the last three Star Wars? And he would say, no. He's, Do you know Brian? He would say, um, no, I actually don't know him. Even though I've tweeted at him a lot of times, he doesn't know me. And so you, you could fact check that, right? That's a similar type of situation that we have dealing here with these gospel accounts where, where it is um, all of these particular uh, eyewitness accounts that we're seeing. But I do want to say, because we're, we're going to look at a logical, kind of three logical things, I do want to just kind of recognize on the front end, and this goes without saying, but I fucking need to say it. 
The resurrection is what? Supernatural. It's supernatural. I will never be able to, anybody that I talk to, any secular person, any person that that doesn't identify as a Christian, I can give you a a logical case for the resurrection. We can look at all these things while at the same time still recognizing that the resurrection is supernatural. I mean, if if you're looking at the text, what what does it say? If you look in verse 2 of 28, it, it says that an earthquake happened, an angel of the Lord descended from heaven and approached the tomb. That's supernatural type stuff going on like out of this world type of situation. So I want us to, uh, I do want us to kind of, as we're thinking through these, we got to remember that particular part. Okay, let's dive in. I'm, I'm going to run out of time. All right, Matthew 27, 62 uh, through 66. Let me read again just briefly. It says, the next day, which followed the preparation day, here's kind of the first thing that we're going to see. Um, the next day following the, the, the preparation day, the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered before Pilate and they said to him, hey, he, this guy had a plan that he was going to rise from the dead and we need you to take care of it. Like, we, we need you to go to the tomb, secure the tomb, make it, make it secure, because if the body gets free, we're in trouble. If it gets free, um, we're, we're in trouble. Now, we've been talking about, all throughout this series, the Holy Week series that we've been in, we've been talking about the conflict and the opposition that Jesus has been facing, right, from the religious leaders. The, the religious leaders saw Jesus as what? A threat to the establishment, that they saw Jesus, um, right, as he was coming against how things were done, right? He was advocating self-denial, love for, the neighbor, uh, love for neighbor, care for the marginalized. These were, ironically, the things that the religious, leader, uh, the religious leaders of Jesus' day were not interested in. And you have a Jewish rabbi, this Messiah, who lands on the scene in Palestine and preaches self-denial, care for the poor, care for the marginalized, He's elevating women. He's doing all of these things. And the religious leaders are saying, no, we got to stop this. This cannot happen. We've, um, we've worked too hard to get here. So now looking at this, who are they fearful of now? Not Jesus. Why? They presume Jesus to be what? Dead. Now the story is telling us um, that they're, they're fearful that, uh, that his disciples are going to kind of bring something about. See, Jesus, isn't, um, Jesus wasn't the first Jewish revolutionary to hit the scene. We, we know from um, Acts chapter 5, if you read Acts chapter 5, there were several kind of Jewish revolutionary leaders that came about that would kind of pop up, gather a crowd, cast a vision, and then, and then they would what? It would be squashed out, the leader would be killed, he'd be in prison, and it would be over with. And so they're trying to keep the Jesus movement, the way, of, uh, the way of Jesus, right? People of the way is what they called them. They're trying to keep this down. And so the, the text tells us that they conceived a plan that they wanted to protect against this perceived um, resurrection. And so here's the first barrier, and I would say evidence to the resurrection. The first barrier and the evidence to the resurrection. Uh, so the Roman government sends trained guard, train guards to the tomb, uh, now, you have to remove any kind of pre- preconceived notions about these guards, right? This is not Ben Stiller, night at the museum situation. These are trained killers. These are Roman guards. These dudes will squash you. We know that they could lose their job for failing in their job, right? They're not worried about a pay cut or a demotion. They're worried about their life. All right, so Roman guards going to the tomb, not Ben Stiller. Roman guards going to the tomb. They're there with motivation to see their orders through. Their motivation is high. And so the text tells us in Matthew 28, um, 1 through 4, it says that an earthquake happens and an angel descended from heaven, 
rolled the stone back. And then in verse 4, it says that the guards were so shaken by fear that they became like dead men, which I think is an appropriate response, personally. Right? I think that's an appropriate response. And then if you look down in verse 11 through 15, uh, it says that they came in and told the priest. I'll just summarize. They came and told the priest, and they agreed on this plan. And they, they essentially said, what a, what a great plan. They said, um, say that the disciples came in the night and stole him while you were sleeping. While you were sleeping. Okay, so here's some of the valuable evidence for resurrected Christ. Uh, so we see another plan created to keep the Jesus movement dormant, right? The first plan was send the guards to the tomb, and that didn't work. That was yesterday. That was Holy Saturday. It didn't work. Second plan is, okay, here's the plan. Go and communicate that something happened. Now, here's what I want to focus on. First barrier, first evidence for the resurrection. I don't so much want to focus on the plan so much as what the plan tells us. What, is the, what does the plan tell us? It tells us what? that the tomb was empty. Have you thought of that before? Like the religious leaders in this moment are admitting that the tomb that Jesus was buried in is now empty. There's no debate there. He's not there. He's gone. And, and they're trying to now conceive this idea and this counter argument, right, that in um, Matthew even says that this, this, this argument, this counter kind of argument that's been going around that you've been hearing about up until this day. Matthew's just pointing to, in this particular narrative, he's just saying, hey, you know the story about the disciples took the body and the guards were asleep? He's just saying, hey, here's where that story came from, that story that you hear. Can we think about that moment? So his, he's not even trying to convince his audience that the tomb is empty. He's just simply stating the reason for the tomb being empty is not the story that you've been hearing. It's not. That's what he's saying to us. So we have these, right? I mean, it's ludicrous. We have these highly trained Roman guards and these fearful, frightened uh, disciples of, of these Jewish followers who didn't even see the resurrection at this point in the, in the narrative of the Jewish heritage, didn't even see the resurrection of the dead as a logical thing that could even happen wasn't even in their wheelhouse to believe could happen. All right, let's look at the next barrier, uh, Matthew 28. So the first barrier is guards at the tomb uh, posted up there th um, thinking they're gonna be able to keep it. Matthew 28, in verse one, it says, after the Sabbath, the first day of the week was dawning, Mary Magdalene, the other Mary, went to view the tomb. Verse five, the angel told the women, don't be afraid because I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He is not here. So they leave quickly from the tomb, verse 8. So departing quickly from the tomb, with fear and great joy, they ran to tell his disciples. Just then Jesus met them and said, greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and they worshiped him. I love this part of the resurrection story. Love it. What, what's happening here? So Mary, this Mary, along with some other women, have now returned to the tomb with spices for the body of Jesus. And to their surprise, the body's not there. They weren't, go, they weren't going, hey, let's catch him as he's coming out. No, they got the spices. They're, they're coming to help prepare the body. They first encounter an angel, and then they see Jesus himself, right? So here's the question. Here's the thought. Here is the observation. Who were the first people to see Jesus resurrected? They were who? The women. The sisters. Not the brothers. This, who, this, is, this is who saw them. Now let's consider this for a second, right? If, if, the, 
if the biblical writers want to make up a story, a fabrication, an experience, what you have to understand about the the viewpoint in in, in Greek culture, in Jewish culture, and in Roman culture, uh, women could not inherit property. Uh, In those days, we know, according to the Jewish historian Josephus, that uh, a woman's testimony in court would be thrown out, that it wouldn't hold up. Just wouldn't. Women in these days had no value. Didn't have value. And so, if the New Testament writers, these early followers of Jesus, are going to make up a fabrication story and experience about a resurrected Jesus, they are not going to use a group of women as the primary eyewitnesses. Right? You would look at them and go, that's so, that's so dumb, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Like, why would, you, why would you do that? Like, why would you do that? Do you know why they did it? Do you know, do you know why it's here? Because that's the way it went down. They're just telling you what happened. They're just, they're just simply stating, hey, this is what happened. Mary and some other women are, are there, and, and we're just going to say what it is. You can culturally dismiss it if you like, but we're just going to put it out. This is what it is. This is what happens here. All right, what's the third barrier? So first barrier, to, uh, Roman guards, Romans at the tomb to guard. Second barrier is women as primary eyewitnesses. Uh, in the story, in the third barrier, we see in, uh, in here at the end of Matthew's account. In Matthew um, 28, verse 10, it says, Then Jesus told them, uh, Don't be afraid. Go and tell the brothers to leave for Galilee, and they will see me there. Then in Matthew 28, 16 and 20, um, it says that the, the disciples traveled to Galilee, and Jesus gives them something called the Great Commission. If you're familiar with it all with the Great Commission, um, there's, you know, songs that you memorize and uh, that, that we did in youth group that I could do it for you right now, like on the spot if I wanted to do the Great Commission song. I won't. Matthew 28, 19, and 20. That's the Great Commission. All right, here we go. So, so, so Jesus has now finally revealed himself to the, to the men. So he's, he's resurrected body. He's now revealed himself to the men. And here's what Jesus has to say to me. He says to them, go and make disciples, spread the good news, go and tell others the news of the kingdom of God, take my way, the way of Jesus to the ends of the earth. And do you know what happened? They did just that. They did just that. They listened to him. They, they, they took off with um, this, mirror, this, uh, this message of Jesus. So what is the barrier and how is this particular story evidence? Well, the barrier is, that these same men just days before this ran, denied, and in general abandoned the cause. Ran, denied, and abandoned the cause of Jesus. These same men that he's now meeting with, they're out. Well, why, why did that happen? Was it because they were cowards? Maybe. I'm sure that was probably some of it. Were, were they disappointed that the mission had failed? Probably. What was it now they're thinking, Man, all of this that we've been working towards is over. The, the perceived power and influence that we could have had is now gone. Do you know what I think it is? It could have been any of this. Do you know, do you know what just my just thought on human people, on, on why the disciples have taken off? I think they were heartbroken. Jesus was their friend, their leader, their Messiah, their teacher the one that has been living with them, feeding them, calming storms, healing people, bringing the marginalized close, and they've just seen him do what? Be mocked, beaten, 
put into a unjust trial, stripped naked with a crown on his head and placed on a hill on a Roman execution device. Can we feel that for a moment? That's these men and women's leader. I think they were heartbroken. So let's think about this for a second. So, so the question that we have to ask is what would cause these men to change course so quickly? What would cause them to change course so quickly? Did, did Peter gather the disciples and say, no, we got a vision and a mission and, a, and a, you know, we got a strategy that we want to put in place. We're going to take the way of Jesus now to the ends of the earth. This is what we're going to do. Do you think if they went and got the body of Jesus and they carried the dead body of Jesus, do you think that vision would carry them to their death? What we know, according to history, is that every one of the disciples, except for John, every one of the disciples was killed for their faith, tortured and killed for their faith, except for John, who was exiled to the Isle of Patmos, where they were like, he won't, he won't create any trouble on the Isle of Patmos. And he wrote Revelation. Anyways, he's like, thanks for the space, guys. Um, what would do that? Well, what would do that is a resurrected Messiah, a risen Savior, a face-to-face interaction with their teacher who is dead, who is now alive. Uh, a Yale historian um, says this. I love what he, he says, never in so short a time, this is a secular, non-believer Yale, um, he says, never in so short a time has any other religious faith, or for that matter, any other set of ideas, religious, political, or otherwise, without the aid of physical force, achieved so commanding a position in such a short, uh, in so commanding a position in such a short time in such an important society. So you hear that? He says, never happened before this quickly. And then that same scholar says this. I really like this. He says, uh, the more one examines the factors which seem to account for the extraordinary victory of Christianity, the more one is driven to search for a cause underlying them all. It is clear that from the very beginning of Christianity, here it is, here's the line, that from the very beginning of Christianity, there must have occurred a vast release of energy, virtually unparalleled in history, without which the future course of the religion is unexplainable. I actually really respect this, right? I mean, what is he doing? What, what is he doing here? We, we have this kind of good secular historian, right? He's trying to be a good secular historian that is, is you know, taken serious by his peers, while at the same time, getting as close to the line as he can without saying, I think something supernatural happened here. You got to respect that. Keep his job. I get it. So he just says, some vast release of energy. Yeah, it was a vast release of energy. It was a a risen Messiah. That's what was interjecting into this particular thing. Now, historians come up with all kinds of reasons why they think the way of Jesus pursued so quickly. Uh, some people think it was because they create a sense of belonging and community that no one else was doing. I think that's legit. I think that's a legitimate thing. Some people think it was because the, the, Christian, the early Christian church was so compassionate. There, there was one church in Alexandria. Um, uh, life wasn't very valuable then. And if you had a baby, especially if you had a girl, this is why I say that the way of Jesus has, has, has risen um, the value of women. If you had a girl, you could just throw the girl, any baby, but usually were girls, you throw them in the river, just leave them on the street. And so what we know about church history is the church at Alexandria was actually going through the streets and gathering these babies and taking them back to the church and the church was adopting these babies. Who doesn't want to be a part of that? 
mean, who doesn't, who's that not appealing to? Now, I think all of those things are great reasons and attractive reasons for why you would want to join the church, right? But it still doesn't account for why a group of people in the midst of all kinds of other people would do this. Why would they create a community and a sense of belonging like no one else? Why would they be compassionate like no one else? Why would they do these things? A resurrected Messiah. See, what we see actually happens is these perceived barriers have done what? They make the message stronger. It's like the process that, that, that still goes through to be stronger. It's a violent process. It just makes it stronger. Okay, three implications here, and then we'll be done. Um, I'll pray for us. Because I don't want this to be primarily intellectual and heady. Um, so why does the resurrection matter? Why does it matter? Here's first thought. If you're taking notes, you can write this down. Uh, the resurrection matters because it means that God is reconciling all people. It matters because he's reconciling all people, every one, right? So this, the, the Bible talks about we're reconciled to the Father. To be made righteous, which is what the Bible uses a lot to say that we're made righteous through Jesus means what? It means right relationship. And the resurrection meant that God was reconciling uh, all people to himself. If we go back to the first eyewitness story, what do we see? We, we see women as the, the first story. I mean, think through that, right? One of the main women, Mary Magdalene, the Bible tells us at one point, had seven demons, which would, would have done what? Would have marginalized her even more to be someone who had seven demons at one point. And, and, and so let's kind of settle into what God is doing here, right? He, he takes women as the first kind of primary eyewitnesses to the story, and a woman who had seven demons at one point and says, I'm going to place her at the, the, the tip, the primary eyewitness to the resurrection. God's doing what? He's saying, I am doing something new here. I'm creating a new community, a different community. If we run around this room, and I would love to, but we don't have time. If we run around this room and we're just like, hey, give me your story. Tell me your story. Like, what's your story? What's your, what's your background? What's your, what's your family like? What were, your, what were your parents like? What was your kind of, you know, just situation like? What, just kind of, kind of walk through all this. What is your kind of socioeconomic status, right? I mean, the church is kind of breaking down all these types of things. It's like, hey, your, your income doesn't matter. Your background doesn't matter. Your ethnicity doesn't matter. Your political affiliation doesn't matter. Uh, all of these types, your value, your gift set doesn't matter. Like all of these things um, at the end of the day, we're not checking them on the way in to see if they fit a perceived kind of view that we have. This is God's church. This is why it should be so radically different than the world in which we live and operate in. And who did this? God, and how did he do it? The resurrection of Jesus. At that point, it was no longer a, a primarily a Jewish um, religious worldview. It was opened up to everyone. And so he's reconciling um, all people. Second thing that the resurrection means is it means that God wants intimacy with you. If you look at Matthew 28, verse 8 and 9, um, look what it says in this part, Matthew 28, uh, 8 and 9. It says, so departing quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy, they ran to tell disciples news, and then Jesus came to them. Verse 9, here's the verse, they came up, took hold of his feet, and worshiped him. Do you see that? They took hold of his feet and worshiped him to get close to the divine. Like this for a Jewish audience would have been the craziest thing to get close to him. I mean, Jesus in the gospel of John chapter one, John says this about Jesus. It says, in the beginning was Jesus and Jesus was with God and he was 
God. All things were created through Jesus and nothing that was created is not created unless Jesus is a part of it. And the women now are holding the one that John says from the beginning made all things. You feeling that? The father wants intimacy with the people. He's saying, this is the God I am. This is who I am. And a resurrected Messiah made it possible. Made it, made it possible. He's saying, come in close. Come in close. Know me. Third thing that we see, third implication, and then I'll pray and we'll be done, is the resurrection means that God gives you a firm hope. The resurrection means that God gives you a firm hope. We've been talking um, all throughout this Holy Week series about God demonstrating his authority, practicing his authority all throughout the narrative. And we see here at the end, Matthew 28, 18 and 20, it says, Jesus came near and said to them, two, he said two things that he said to them. It's really good news for us. He said, all authority has been given to me in heaven and I'm with you always. Let me say it again, because I want to land all authority has been given to me, and I am with you always. I'm with you always. Now, perhaps you, like myself, have had a tremendous sense of hopelessness in this past year. Just, just hopelessness, right? What, what does God do here in the resurrection? He, he, he aims to overcome our sense of isolation, loneliness, and abandonment. Do you, do you know what God did in the resurrection through Jesus? He closed the gap. He took the initiative to close the gap that the Bible said exists between us and God. This is what he did. See, the Bible says that when we were born, we were born enemies of God, separated from God, not, not in the family of God. And so God, surveying the situation, knowing there's rebellious people, did what? He took it upon himself to close the gap. And that happened through a resurrected Jesus, through his son. And so he wants to give you a firm hope, a firm hope. And so maybe you're here and you've been looking for hope somewhere else and it's not landing. It's not working. You put a hope in a relationship, in a financial status, in your portfolio, in your position, in your ability, and it's not working. You continue to experience brokenness, relational brokenness. Um, it's just not working, man. Maybe today you need to trust a resurrected Messiah. One who closed the gap on your behalf. Maybe you need to commit your life to him as, as Lord. Admit to God the Father that you, you you've, are born in sin and rebellion. And you've gone your own way. Maybe you're here and, and um, man, maybe God, you may, maybe you identify as a follower of Christ, but you've not, um, you've not been doing the work to kind of bring people into this, this kind of nature of the church of saying, man, God is for all people. Maybe God's been calling you to do that, but you've been real timid and scared and you just are not... You're not doing that, or, or maybe you've been qualifying the worth of people based on how they look, what they make, their ethnicity, or their political affiliation. And God tells you that is sin. That his gospel is worth all people. We do not have the right to determine who we take the gospel to.